Brad Hannon. Thank you, Marty. Fellow students, if you would uh, open to 1 Corinthians. And we'll get rolling. <clears throat> uh, we're going to begin for the next quarter uh, in 1 and 2 Corinthians. Just to give you a little bit of background, Corinthians was a Corinth was a pretty tough city. Corinth was really a combination of New Orleans and Mardi Gras, um, Las Vegas Strip, and uh, a city in Thailand called Pattaya. A million men visit Pattaya every year and none of them is there to keep a vow of chastity. So that is Corinth in a nutshell. Rob's going to give you a little bit of background on a screen to give you an idea where Corinth is geographically. Corinth today is a, a, a much smaller uh, city at this point, but this time in history it was the leading city in Corinth. About 45 miles due west of Athens between the Aegean and Adriatic Seas. Athens was the intellectual, artistic, and kind of cultural capital of Greece, but it's it's, uh, it's really, its apogee came about 400 years before, 450 years before into Pericles. So Athens was kind of on the decline and Corinth was where it was at. It's where the action was, the political action, and it was certainly the commercial trade center for this whole region. It was very strategically positioned. Rob's gonna show you a little picture of a diagram of the isthmus. Uh, Corinth was overlooked, really uh, built on a narrow isthmus that connected the Greek mainland with this whole southern peninsula called Peloponnesus. So anyone moving north or south uh, along from northern mainland Greece to the southern Peloponnesus traveled this little isthmus. It's about four miles wide. And it created two natural harbors, one on each gulf, the Gulf of Corinth and the Sarconic Gulf. So it was a two-port city. They had a port on each side of, uh, of the, um, this little isthmus. The city itself is about five miles or so in circumference. Um, it's positioned on a plateau which overlooked the isthmus, so it's very, very strategically positioned. Commercial ships would dock on both sides of this little four-mile uh, strip of uh, land, and many of them would just hand-carry their cargoes across this four-mile strip. The big ships would unload, carry them across, and reload on the other side. The smaller ships, they had a system of skids and rollers. They would just take the smaller ships and skid them across on rollers. They had kind of a track system built at that point. And the reason they crossed the isthmus, because if you didn't cross this little four and a half mile strip, you had to sail all the way around the Peloponnesian Peninsula, which was about 250 miles. And it was very, very tough water, very rough water. You had two seas meet at the southern tip, like the Cape of Good Hope, Southern Africa, or the, or, or the Cape, Cape Horn in Latin America, and very, very rough water, very tough. So it was just easier to dock here Take the cargo four miles across the isthmus. Of course, Corinth was the city where all these traders and sailors came. And like any port city, uh, it was a pretty, pretty rough place. Um, the second thing that really carried a lot of population in Corinth was something called the Isthmian Games, which was second only to the Olympic Games. And Corinth was the host city for uh, the games. And as we know with the Olympics, that brings an awful lot of people in town. So it brought a lot of trade, a lot of people. And where there's a lot of people, there's a lot of sin. And Corinth had it in spades. Corinth is a seaport city. Uh, so most of it was right there on the plateau, but it also had a high city. Rob's gonna give you a shot of the Acropolis, which literally translates high city. 
uh, and it had a well-deserved reputation for depravity and debauchery throughout the empire. The entire Roman Empire knew about this city. Even in pagan Roman Empire, where morals weren't too good, Corinth was known as Sin City. It was, it was pretty infamous for its drunkenness and immorality. To call someone a Corinthian girl was to call them a prostitute. Those were synonymous. And to play the Corinthian in any particular form meant that you were obviously living a life of depravity and immorality. So this Acropolis was about 2,000 feet above the plateau where the city was, uh, and at the top was a military fortress and a temple for Aphrodite. Aphrodite was the Greek goddess of love. The Roman version of Aphrodite is Venus, right? So it's the same goddess, the goddess of love. And of course, they took that to extremes. Every night, a thousand cultic prostitutes or religious prostitutes would descend the hill, this Acropolis, into the city below and uh, minister for money uh, to the city's uh, visitors and, uh, and citizens. So it, it, this was a very, very tough city that Paul came to to plant the gospel in. It was an ancient city. It had actually been around for the better part of 2,500 years by the time Paul got there but it was completely destroyed in 146 BC. They had revolted against Rome and Rome came in and just leveled the city. So it was literally desolate for a hundred years. A century, nothing was there. And then it was rebuilt in Julie, by Julius Caesar in 44 BC and he turned it into a Roman colony. So Paul shows up at this city in AD 51, about 51 years after uh, Christ was born and probably 15, 16, 17, 18 years after the crucifixion and resurrection. At this point in time, it had a population well over 100,000 people. Paul stayed there for 18 months. As you recall from our study back in Acts, he met up with Priscilla and Aquila. They were leather workers, tent makers, and he stayed there for 18 months. So he was there from the spring of 51 till about the fall of, of 52. He sailed away to Ephesus in the fall of 52. In the Mediterranean, if you, didn't, if you weren't done sailing by November, you were done till the end of February because it was the winter season and the storms were just too rough. So he sailed out of there uh, probably the fall of 52 to Ephesus on his way to Jerusalem. He was at Jerusalem, as you recall, after the second missionary voyage. Then he came back around to Ephesus uh, about a year later in the fall of 53. And he stayed in Ephesus for three years. So during his three-year stay in Ephesus is when this letter was written, 1 Corinthians. We're going to find out that when he was there in Ephesus, an official delegation came from the church at Corinth and said, we got troubles, big troubles in River City, a lot of bad things going on. We got a lot of questions for you. So Paul wrote that letter, 1 Corinthians, about 54, 55 AD from Ephesus to Corinth to answer their questions and address their problems. And the church at Corinth was a significant mess at this point in time. Uh, Dwight Moody once said, a ship lives in the water, but if the water gets into the ship, she goes to the bottom. So Christians may live in the world, but if the world gets into them, they sink. The sins of the city of Corinth had actually come into the church and were literally sinking it. So the church here was behaving just like the world. And they had a lot of bad habits, a lot of bad habits. They were really struggling trying to divorce themselves from those old sinful habits because it was creating a lot of havoc. Uh, how many of you have habits? I don't mean a restaurant, I mean habits. Some of those old habits are tough to deal with, right? 
Heck, some of your new habits are tough to deal with. Uh, so you're gonna, you're gonna read this and you're gonna say, um, I can identify with some of this. Some of this I can't identify because I don't have the problems they do, but they have a lot of sinful, immature behaviors and Paul's going to address them and he's gonna speak to us at the same time. The book can be really, really divided into two chunks. The first six chapters uh, Paul is dealing with division and disorder in the church. There's an awful lot of divisions. There's quarrelings. There's infightings. There's cliques. Really, really bad. And the chapters 7 through 16, the back half of the book, are, he's responding to specific questions. So he'll say concerning XYZ. Because they wrote a laundry list of, we've got questions, Paul, about ba-boom, 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 ba-boom. And he addresses those in the last half of the book. So when you look at chapter 1 here, the first 10 verses, Paul thanks God for bringing them into a relationship with Jesus Christ, and he dives right into their two biggest problems in chapter 1. First of all, they were exalting human leaders. They were exalting human leaders, and secondly, they were exalting human wisdom. Let's pick up the story in, in verse 10. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and of the same judgment. Here's the principle. All followers of Jesus belong to God's family, and God wants his children to live in harmony. If you're a parent, this statement will make extremely good sense to you, correct? Say yes. yes. You're a parent. You want your children to live in harmony. We're part of God's family. He wants his children to live in harmony. So he, he, Paul appeals to them to live in harmony based on the authority of Jesus Christ, who is Lord of the church. Unity is important for lots of reasons, but one of the things that unity is so powerful is it is the most powerful testimony to the world that Jesus Christ is real. Because unity and people getting along is so rare. Would you agree? Disunity, dissension, quarreling, faction, fighting, all of that other stuff, that seems to be pretty normal on planet Earth. So when people love each other and get along in harmony, the world goes, that's unusual. Yeah, it's unusual, it's supernatural. It's testimony to Jesus Christ. Jesus said before he left, they'll know you are Christians by your love. That's getting along. So Paul calls these, these church at Corinth, he calls them brethren, which means they all belong to the same family. Of course, we're all adopted into God's family at the moment of salvation. So in this room, we are all, spiritually speaking, brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters in Christ. But we're even more intimately connected to that because in the New Testament, the Bible calls God's people a body. He likens us to a human body. And Jesus Christ is the head of the body, and you and I are individually parts of the body. Paul talks about that a little later on in the scriptures. So we're intimately connected with each other, just like the arm is connected to the hand, is connected to the shoulder. We as brothers and sisters, part of the same family, are also part of Christ's body, and we're intimately connected with each other. And Paul says, the eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. And the ear can't say to the foot, I don't need you. The truth of it is, we need each other. Amen? None of us have all the spiritual gifts, and God has a plan for us to use them. We are connected with each other, and in life group we say what? 
We do life together, together. Paul says, look, I want you to agree. I want you to all agree. And he's not talking about uniformity. He's talking about unity. And there's a significant difference between uniformity and unity. A uniform is like in the military. Everybody wears the exact same thing. That's not what he's talking about. In music, if you sync a unison pitch, right? A unison pitch is what? Everybody sings the same note, right? That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about everyone is singing the same song in beautiful harmony. That's what he's, when he says, I want you to be of unity. He's not saying you all have to think like robots. You don't all have to agree, say the same thing, but you need to be singing the same song. God's people are unified around Jesus Christ. So in musical terms, what he's saying is, look, Jesus Christ is the composer of the song you're singing, right? And he's also the conductor. So you follow the conductor, correct? Who wrote the music? And each of you in this room have a part to sing that God assigned you to sing. You have a spiritual gift, probably more than one. Most of you are extra bright in this room. And you are to be using that spiritual gift as God has orchestrated. Casey Stingle once said, it's easy to get good players on a baseball team. What's hard is getting them to play together, right? Superstar sports people are, you can find them. But we all know that what wins championships is not great players. It's great teams. Great teams win championships. This church at Corinth is not a team. They are deeply divided. They're a quarreling family feud. If you ever saw that family feud show, put that on steroids. They're disagreeably, there's a lot of divisions among them. And the word division here in the Greek means schism or split. There's a lot of rival factions going on. Uh, it literally means, schism means to rip or tear a piece of clothing into pieces. It's like, how many of you have a rag drawer at home? Any of you have a rag drawer at home? Nobody has a rag drawer at home? Oh, some of you do, okay. Those rags you rip to mop stuff up, et cetera, et cetera. So that's what he's talking about. You guys are ripped up, you're like a garment torn to pieces. Or I grew up on the farm and, and the other metaphor here is to plow up or rip up a field. If you have a hard pan in the field, you drive a chisel into it with a D9 cat and you just rip it up. That's what he's talking about, these divisions. And these divisions are not based on little preference issues, they're based on doctrinal issues because their belief systems, the Corinthians' belief systems are faulty and therefore their behaviors are faulty as well. He says, what I want you to do is I don't want you to be divided, I want you to be made complete. I want you to be made complete, and that's a medical term. And it means literally, I want you to be joined together. It means to put something back together that was broken or separated. It literally talks about mending broken bones, uh, uh, dislocated joints, mending fishing nets, uh, mending torn clothing. So it's, it's bringing together something that is separated, and that's what he wants this church to do because the relationships in this Corinthian church are fractured. They're broken. By the way, broken relationships are almost all broken relationships in the church are indicators generally of immaturity and pride. When a church is divided and fighting, they are not mature. Would you agree? When a church is broken and divided and fractured, they're not accomplishing 
the work that God gave them to do. So Paul says, I want you to be of the same mind. Now that doesn't mean you agree on everything, but it says you have the same perspective. You're looking at life from God's point of view, not man's point of view. One of the things that impressed me about Valley, we've been here probably 15, 16 years, is that this church is on the same page. This church is on the same page. And it's not that we don't have different opinions. We've got a lot of different opinions. But this church majors on looking at life from the perspective of the Bible. What does God's word have to say? That's the lens that we look at the world through. We look, try and look at through the world from God's perspective, not our perspective. Uh, one of the things that probably be good for all of us, how many of you are reasonably impressed with your own opinion? I said reasonably. <laughs> Just reasonably impressed. I didn't say overly impressed. How many of you are overly impressed? I'd be on that list. Yeah, okay, that, that just makes sure I'm talking to the right crowd. Yeah, yeah. If you ask somebody, what do you think about blah, blah, blah? Will they have an opinion? Of course. Will they like their opinion? Of course. Will they defend their opinion? Of course, right, you know the drill, right? One of the things that is interesting, though, is if it's my opinion or God's opinion, which one should I put the most faith in? Probably God's opinion, like absolutely 100% God's opinion. So don't be overly impressed with your own point of view. Be very impressed with God's point of view. And Paul says, I want you to, be, I want you to not only be of the same mind, the same perspective, I want you to have the same judgment. What he's talking about is making decisions. And he says, when you reach, when you look at these particular decisions and these particular issues, I want you to reach a decision, but I want you to reach a decision and maintain your unity in the process. Did you understand that? That's the hard part. Reaching a decision in marriage is real simple. All you need is one of you be a dictator and you'll get a decision, right? But will you maintain unity in the process? We're a church family, a family of God. How we reach the decision may be more important than the decision we reach, right? Providing the decision's biblical. So Paul says, I want you to reach a decision, but I want you to maintain harmony in how you go about reaching that decision. And they hadn't been doing that because the foundation of their decision-making wasn't God's word, it was their own particular perspective. Now, the Moravians had a little model that summed up what our perspective on unity probably should be. Rob's going to put that on screen for you. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. Now, here's where we get into problems. We argue about what's essential and what ain't essential. Right? Most of those arguments are not essential. Right? So... The Bible tells us what's essential and what's not essential. And if it's not essential, liberty is the order of the day. Give people freedom, right? But in all things, even when we disagree, do so with charity and with love. Verse 11. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now this I mean that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul and I have of Apollos and I am of Cephas and I am of Christ. Here's the principle. Christ unites us. Pride divides us. Christ unites us, but pride divides us. Exalting Jesus brings people together. Elevating people breaks us apart. 
Chloe's probably a very prominent businesswoman in the Corinthian church. Her name means blooming or fair one. She has apparently servants or family members from her household or her business that literally traveled from Corinth across the Aegean Sea all the way to Ephesus and told Paul, we got trouble in River City, right? There's a lot of issues going on in the Corinthian church here we need to deal with. And a good, a good principle to remember when there's problems are, you can't fix it if you won't face it, right? You can't fix it if you won't face it. Whatever issues, denial is not a river in Egypt, right? And as my friend Darren has said for decades, hope is not a strategy. You can't fix it if you won't face it. If there's problems, face them. The Chloe's people told Paul, we've got troubles. So accurate diagnosis is essential for effective treatment. So what was the real problem? Well, we have different opinions, which they're quarreling about, and now they're divided over their opinions, and here's what they're doing. Paul just uses these words to describe them. He says, each one of you is saying, I. So this is very much a separated church. It's all about me. Paul doesn't say, I'm hearing the words we, our, us, together, Jesus. No, no, it's I, each one, got their own gig, right? This is not the sound of a choir singing in harmony. This is the sound of a bunch of soloists trying to sing louder than everybody else. That's what's going on in this church. There's an old song the Oak Ridge Boys put out years ago. It says, nobody wants to play rhythm guitar behind Jesus. Everybody wants to be the lead singer in the band, right? So this church has separated itself into four cliques. Four cliques, four little factions. And each clique at Corinth is claiming that we are superior to y'all because of the leader we're following. By the way, differences of opinion are fine. They should be encouraged. The problem with cliques, how many of you graduated, how many of you went to high school? Forget to graduate. You went to high school. All right, just making sure I'm talking about Christ. Or junior high even, that's even worse. How many of you have experienced cliques in junior high and high school, et cetera, et cetera? Here's the problem with cliques. Cliques all believe I'm right and you're wrong. And therefore, I'm good and you're bad. So there's two sets of judgments. I'm right and you're wrong. And based on that, I'm good and you're bad. Only you, if you agree with me, are you both right and good. Anybody who disagrees with me is both wrong and bad. And we have a culture around the world today that in power politics and politics, we practice that as adults. And it stinks, right? What do we do with people who disagree with politically? We demonize them. We call them sons of Satan and all sorts of interesting language if they happen to disagree with us. That's being a little overly impressed with your own opinion. Well, this Corinthian church is very impressed with their own opinion, right? Here's what they're saying. Paul says, some of you say, I am of Paul. I am of Paulos. I am of Cephas. So the clique that follows Paul, Paul's not even in this church, he's in Ephesus, but the clique that claims to follow Paul, they say, well, he's the founding pastor of this church. Paul's the kind of teacher who can make a complex subject really easy to understand. Paul is my kind of preacher, I'm following Paul. Now, Apollos, he's an eloquent orator. He's a very gifted, eloquent 
apologist. He powerfully refutes the Jews in the synagogue. He proves from the Old Testament that Jesus was the Messiah and he was Israel's Messiah. Apollos appeals to the intellectual crowd. I mean, he's an academic, he's a scholar, he's a great orator, he's easy to listen to, he's highly educated, and there's a clique in this crowd, in this church, that go, I'm of Apollos. Apollos is my kind of preacher, right? Now, Peter, he's got a faction that follow him. He's never been there, but they say, I'm of Peter. Peter's the leading apostle to the, Gentile, to the Jews, Paul, I mean, Peter's the leader of the 12 disciples, right? He's always first on the list. He was held very high esteem by people who wanted the pastor with a really seasoned past, very mature, got a history, a little more traditional outlook. Peter was pretty Jewish in his outlook. And, and the people in Corinth says, Peter's my kind of preacher. And then the last click is the most dangerous of all. They said, we're of Christ. We alone follow Jesus. We are the black belts of the faith, right? We are the spiritually elite. We are closer to God than the rest of you unwashed pagans, right? Ever met somebody who's a little holier than thou? Is it a little odiferous when you get around them? Does it kind of smell like death, right? This group said, we got the 1-800 speed dial to God and the rest of you have to go through snail mail to get to him because we're closer than you are, right? So this is just pure pride. And you know what, how God feels about pride? God pukes on pride. God destroys pride. God despises pride. So this pride, each one of these cliques is creating a lot of conflict and division. And they're actually... These, these cliques are, are elevating their human leaders above Jesus. And the problem is they're not focusing on the message of the gospel. They're focusing on the messenger of the gospel. Now, the application for us is real. I mean, it's pretty obvious. Are there still cliques today? Do they exist in adult circles? Oh, yeah, they do? Wow, I mean, we're back to like junior hires. Yeah, some things never change. We have personality cults. People say, well, I listen to so-and-so, and he, pastor so-and-so says, blah, 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 blah. Uh, I was baptized by so-and-so, and his water is warmer than your water. Whatever, right? So anytime you elevate humans, who do you de-elevate? Jesus, right? Downplay Jesus. As Christians, our primary loyalty is always to Jesus Christ. Never to a human leader. One of the things I love about this church is this church always points people one direction. Where? It's all about Jesus, right? Never about a human leader. Paul, Apollos, and Peter all had different personalities, but they were all one in Christ. Unfortunately, their followers had fragmented them and they weren't following them. Paul takes this on head on. He says in verse 13, has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? He says, you can't divide Jesus up into four little cliques and say, well, Jesus is closer to us. I'm superior to others. So you say, well, how can, if Jesus can't be divided, how can his church be divided? The problem is every one of these cliques was man-centered, not Christ-centered. They were taking their eyes off Jesus. And Paul says, oh, whoa, 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 go back to the basics. How did you get saved? Did you get saved from a man? Did you get saved by a leader? No, no, no. Jesus alone saved you. Your loyalty is to be him alone. 
The gospel is all about Jesus, only about Jesus, always about Jesus. There's only one way to heaven, and it's through Jesus. No pastor, no preacher, no priest, no evangelist, no church can take away your sins. Amen. Only Jesus Christ can make you right with God. There's no intermediary between you and Jesus, right? Amen. Not a pastor, not a preacher, not a priest, not a church, not an evangelist. There's no institution between you and Jesus. It's you and Jesus, and he is the only way to God. Now, we Christians, sometimes we lose sight of that. We, we break ourselves into denominations, and we emphasize a particular aspect of God's truth. Denomination, by the way, means part of the whole. And sometimes we forget that we are a part of the whole, not the whole itself. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodists, once had a dream where he was ushered to the very gates of hell. And John Wesley asked the gatekeeper to hell, are there any Presbyterians here in hell? And he was told, in fact, there were lots of Presbyterians in hell. He says, you have any Baptists here? Oh, yes, we have Baptists in hell. How about Congregationalists? Oh, yeah. How about Methodists? We have lots of Methodists in hell. He was then transported to heaven's gates. He asked the very same question. Do you have any Presbyterians in heaven? He said, we don't have a one. <clears throat> no Presbyterians in heaven. Do you have any Baptists or Congregationalists in heaven? Not at all. Wesley's starting to get a little nervous. He says, surely you have some Methodists in heaven. No, nope, we have no Methodists in heaven at all. Then Wesley asked, well, who's inside heaven's gates? And the gatekeeper said, we have only Christians here. <laughs> it's not about the particular brand that you wear. It's the cross of Jesus Christ only that makes us right with God. So some of these cliques, they're actually claiming to be superior based on who baptized them, if you can imagine this. Verse 14, Paul says, I thank God I didn't baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius so that none of you could claim that you were baptized in my name. They were bragging that they were baptized by so-and-so and that somehow gave them superior status. Paul says, I didn't baptize many of you, so you can't claim superior status on that. Verse 16, he said, now, I did baptize also the house of Stephanas. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized any other. Paul's not keeping records. I baptized more than you baptized. It ain't important, right? Verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech so that the cross of Christ would be made void. By the way, baptism is important. He's not saying it's not important. If you are a follower of Jesus, you need to be baptized. Baptism is a public declaration that says, I identify with God's people, I belong to God's family, and I'm going public with my loyalty to Jesus Christ. But baptism does not save you, right? Baptism is a symbol, but it doesn't save you. You are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Paul says, my primary calling is to preach the gospel so that Jesus can save those who hear and not baptize them afterwards. So Paul says, okay, the presenting problem is you have quarrels and divisions, you're arguing and fighting. What's the root cause analysis? Those of you in medicine understand that you do evidence-based medicine, which means when you're doing diagnostic work, you always do a root cause analysis, right? You know what I'm talking about? A root cause analysis says, I can't treat the symptom until I understand the cause. I can't cure the symptom if I don't understand the cause, because if I just treat the symptom, 
and they don't fix the cause, guess what? The symptom keeps coming back and coming back and coming back. So I've got to find out what the root cause analysis of the problem is. So Paul says, let's find out the root cause analysis of these quarrels and divisions and why are you guys fighting all the time? Verse 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? Here's the principle. Those who reject the gospel are trusting in finite human wisdom. Those who accept the gospel are trusting in God's infinite wisdom. Paul divides the world into only two camps, as Pastor Roger says this morning, the saved and the unsaved. There's no middle ground. To the unsaved, to those who reject Jesus Christ, the gospel is foolishness. Now, the Greek here means moron. It means moronic, which means when you talk to those who are unsaved, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, it makes no sense to them. It is foolishness, it's moronic, it's nonsense, it's stupid, it's idiotic. Because the gospel contradicts almost everything that sinful people believe about themselves. The gospel says, you and I and everyone are sinners. Helpless to save yourself. Everyone is destined for divine judgment and death without God's help. Now those who reject Christ, what do they believe? I don't need no stinking savior, right? I got this covered. I'm good enough. I can get into heaven based on my own merits. God will let me in. So when you talk about the cross and you talk about salvation, it offends their pride because the cross is very humbling. The second thing the foolish say, the ones who reject the cross, they say, why would you worship a poor, helpless savior couldn't even save himself? I mean, he let himself get crucified, right? And crucifixion was the worst possible death for the lowest common criminal. And you worship this guy who let himself get killed? That doesn't sound like much of a savior to me, right? That's worldly wisdom looking at the cross. For the follower of Jesus, the gospel of the cross is the most powerful thing in the world because it destroyed the penalty of sin for us and it set us free from the power of sin in our life day by day by day by day by day. So for the Christian, the cross is very powerful because it's destroying sin's power over you. We have been set free from sin. We have set free to have a loving relationship with the God of the universe. So the two issues Paul is contrasting is human wisdom and God's wisdom. And he spends the next 11, 12 verses talking about human wisdom and God's wisdom. Christians trust God's wisdom. Those who reject the gospel trust human wisdom. And he's going to contrast those. I have a question for you. Why would you trust human wisdom more than God's wisdom? The very best of human wisdom has no answers to life's most fundamental questions. Where did I come from? Where am I going? What's my purpose on planet Earth while I'm here? Human wisdom has no answers. Human wisdom has no answers for the problems that humanity has been struggling with since Adam. Ever since Adam, for six and a half thousand years, we have been dealing with the same 
problems generation after generation. There's been poverty, there's been war, there's been greed, there's been social injustice, there's been revolution, there's been oppression, there's been power politics, there's death, and human wisdom has no answer for those things. So why would we trust human wisdom? If human wisdom were that effective, the human race wouldn't be struggling with the exact same problems for the last six and a half thousand years, right? You know, for example, let's suppose you're um, a medical doctor with a very long life expectancy and you're trying to cure a terminal condition in your patients. And for six and a half thousand years, your patients keep dying. Ba-boom, 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 ba-boom. After six and a half thousand years of applying human wisdom to the human problem and it's not working, what would you conclude? Maybe we should do something different, right? Maybe we've misdiagnosed the problem. The gospel diagnoses the problem and the Bible says the source of the problem is the human heart. And the human heart refuses to acknowledge God's diagnosis. God says the human heart is evil with the terminal cancer of sin and the only cure is the gospel of Jesus Christ, not human band-aids, right? The, the Christ rejectors who trust in human wisdom, the cross is foolishness because they will not humble themselves. Verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Paul's saying, look, the real problem with human wisdom, the real problem with human smarts is that it cannot bring you into right relationship with God. The curse of human, and by the way, I'm not critiquing human wisdom within its sphere, God gave it to you, but human wisdom on its own cannot bring you into right relationship with God. The only way you can have an infinite God, personal God, who loves people and wants a relationship with them, the only way you can find that out is because God disclosed it to us in the Bible. We didn't discover that from our brilliance, right? Human religion says man can seek God and, and find God through their own efforts. And Paul says, well, let's find out how they try and find him. Verse 22. He says there's two primary ways people try and find God. Number one, the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, you can underline that, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. If you remember in the Old Testament, as well as during the time of Christ, the Jewish establishment, the religious leaders were always asking for more signs. Send us a supernatural sign. Send us a sign from heaven that proves that you are Messiah. Which I found interesting because he kept on healing people, feeding the 5,000, you know, he raised a couple folks from the dead, he kept uh, uh, curing people of dropsy, lameness, blindness, etc., etc. So there seemed like there was plenty of signs going on. Today, we have people who know Christ, apparently, who keep looking for new experiences. Oh, I need to have this new spiritual experience. I need, to, I, I, I need to have this new sensory experience. I need to have a sign from God. I need to have a fleece out there that will demonstrate that physically that God is really real and really leading me. You know, the Jews had his virgin birth. They had multiple miracles. They had his crucifixion, his resurrection from the dead. We've got a long history of God's supernatural intervention in our lives. Every Sunday morning, miracles take place at Valley Baptist Church. 
You know why? Every Sunday morning, people receive Jesus Christ and pass from eternal death to eternal life. That is the greatest miracle on the planet. Far greater than a physical healing because this one is eternal. So you have one group of people that want signs and wonders and they're always looking for the latest and greatest. And then you have the Greeks or the Gentiles and they only believe what they can prove by human logic. They don't believe it if they can't prove it by human logic. Now the Greeks didn't understand the supernatural so they rejected it. They basically said, look, if I can't measure it, I don't accept it. The Greeks essentially said, if I don't understand it, it doesn't exist. So God has to work in ways that my little three and a half pound brain can understand or I reject his existence. Does God ever work in ways that you don't understand? What, what does that tell you? Who, whose wisdom is higher? God's as opposed to yours, right? If God only operated in ways that you could understand, he would have to shrink himself down to our size, right? That wouldn't be much of a God to worship at that point. So God says, I've arranged it so that you humans will never find me on your own because if you do, you're gonna be filled with pride. So I'm gonna reveal myself to you. I, God, am gonna take the initiative to reveal myself and show myself to you so that you will have your faith in divine wisdom and not human wisdom. Paul sums it up in chapter, in verse 25 through 30. He says, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And then he's writing to the church and he says, hold up the mirror, Corinthians. He says, consider your calling, brethren. He's talking about the church there. He says, there's not many wise according to the flesh in your congregation. Don't get too impressed with yourself. You're not all that smart, right? There's not many mighty in your congregation. There's not many noble. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. God chose the base things, that's the discards, the stuff you throw away. And the despised things God has chosen, the things which are not, so that he may nullify the things of our, so that no man may boast before God. Here's the principle. The cure for pride is the gospel. We deserve death, but Jesus gave us life. So praise him and not yourself. Pride is the source of division. Arrogance is the source of I'm better than you are, I'm right, you're wrong, I'm good, you're bad, etc. Paul says the source of those divisions is simply pride and the cure for pride is the gospel. The gospel is very humbling because it says you can't save yourself. As a matter of fact, you weren't smart enough to even seek after God. God sought after you and chased you down in love and saved you while you were still sinners. Christ died for you. How many of you ever seen, um, I'm trying to think where you would probably see it, probably in front of public, um, public buildings. How many of you ever seen uh, what we would call modern art or modern sculpture? Marin and I were in Oregon a number of years ago and we saw this probably 12 to 15 foot high horse. And it probably weighed a couple tons and it was made out of scrap metal. Just throw away pieces of scrap metal and cans and wire and all sorts of interesting things. And this artist had basically looked like they visited the junkyard 
and grabbed all these odds and ends, pieces of metal and stuff, and welded them together, and he produced this horse, and it had gears and sprockets and wheels and crankshafts and all sorts of interesting things that weren't necessarily related to a horse, but he, he'd sh shaped a horse out of it. And some art you see today, it looks like that the artist went to the junkyard to get the building materials, right, to, to build this piece of art. And some of them are quite interesting at the same time, but the message here is God uses that. God uses things that the world considers useless in order to accomplish his purposes. Most of us, matter of fact, all of us in this room have junkyard beginnings. That's not insulting, that's just a description, right? Before we met Christ, how attractive were we? I mean, we got some work to do yet, but before we met Christ, right? Interesting. When you look at the book of Judges, interesting book. Israel is in bondage, and God's going to save Israel from their enemies. And God raises up these judges and gives them supernatural power to free Israel. And when you look at some of the weapons that God has them use to free Israel, you kind of say, are you kidding me? For instance, some of the weapons these judges use to wage war on their enemies include an ox goad. That's just a, a stick, if you will, with a little sharp nail on the end that, you know, poke the ox. A nail. Jael rammed a nail through the temple of one of the generals who was against him. Trumpets, pitchers, and lamps. Gideon, right? A millstone. A woman threw a millstone about 75 pounds off the uh, side of a wall and broke Abimelech's head. The jawbone of a donkey. Samson used a discarded jawbone of a donkey to kill a thousand Philistines. None of these things are what you would and I would say, well, they're not exactly purpose-built weapons. They're kind of just stuff that happened to be around, right? That's what God does. Some of the people God's used to accomplish his purposes in the Bible are not what you would expect either. And this should give us hope. Noah got drunk, got naked. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and Rebekah were all liars. Serial liars, more than once. Judah was a sexual sinner, contracted with a prostitute. Had twins by her. And they're in the line of Christ, by the way. So was Rahab, who was a prostitute. Rachel was a thief, stole from her father. Now that's pretty low, right? Steal from the old man. David was not only an adulteress, he was a murderer. Samson was a gigolo. All 12 disciples were covetous. All 12. Got into more than one argument about who's the greatest. I am the greatest. My only problem is I don't know how great I really am. Right? That's the 12. And Jesus used all this garbage and discard and junkyard behavior and used it to accomplish his purposes. See, God specializes in using broken people. Saving them, changing them, and using them to accomplish what he wants to accomplish so that he receives the glory and not us. So Paul says, church, look in the mirror. You're not really wise. You're not really smart. There's not a lot of 
political operatives in your group. There's not a lot of Mensa genius level folks in here. Not many of you are rich. Not many of you are Nobel Prize winners. You're just average, run-of-the-mill people. And yet God takes ordinary people and does extraordinary things with them because he's the one who is doing the work. Yes? Not us. So when we look in the mirror and we go, Brad, uh, I've got issues. Yeah, we all do. While we're in the flesh, we're going to have issues. We're broken. But God builds his church with people like that. The cure for dissension is humility. The cure for these quarrels is to keep Jesus front and center. And when you keep your eye on Jesus, you see his, the world from his eyes and you see yourself from his eyes. And you realize none of us have anything to brag about. Correct? Say yes. None of us in and of ourselves have anything to brag about. The glory goes to Jesus Christ. So Paul says, the cause of your dissension is pride and selfishness and elevating human beings. The cure for that is focus on the gospel, stay focused on Jesus, elevate him, and then you will see yourself as you really are and you will give him the glory as he does his work in your life. Tom's gonna come and, and uh, lead us in prayer and praise. Let me just give you a review. Number one, all followers, that means everybody in this room belongs to God's family. No one's excluded if they come to Christ by faith and God wants his children to live in harmony. When we live in harmony, it is the best testimony ever to the world that Jesus Christ is real. Christ unites us, but pride divides us. If we're divided and we're arguing, we're fighting and we're belly aching, it's pride. Which means I've got an overvaluation of myself. I've taken my mind off Jesus, I'm focused on myself, and now I'm into clicks and I'm better than you are and blah, blah, blah. Y'all wake up with doggy breath in the morning. Don't get too impressed. When we exalt Jesus Christ, it brings us together. When we exalt people, including ourselves, it breaks us apart. Stay focused on Jesus. Number three. Those who reject the gospel are trusting in their own finite human wisdom. Those who believe the gospel are trusting in God's infinite wisdom. I submit to you that you and I would be well advised in all things to trust God's wisdom, not our wisdom. And lastly, the cure for pride is the gospel. We deserve death, but Jesus gave us life. So praise him and not yourself. Tom, could you come and lead us in prayer? Next week, Lord willing, we'll keep, read ahead. They only give us 12 weeks to get through two books, which I'm a little sorry about. But read ahead. We'll be in the first four or five chapters next week, Lord willing. I love you all. I do. Now that you know.